This is a, a heavyweight battle that we're getting ready to enter into over the next few weeks. Uh, this thing is about the battle of the ages, the battle between this idea of restoration pitted against this thing of punishment. And as I have been working on this message, this thing is years in the making, I have to tell you. Uh, but I saw this thing as like a, a heavyweight fight. I saw it like a, a heavyweight boxing match or UFC. And so I told Chris Eifert, I said, we got to have some kind of like battle card. And so here is the battle card. Over the next little bit, we are looking through Scripture as we wrestle with this notion of what do we do with sin and offense in our life. Do we go down the road of restoration or do we take the road of punishment? And I can tell you that the current heavyweight champion of the world system is punishment. Punishment is, and let me say that again, punishment is the heavyweight champion of this world system. But I am here to tell you that this baby who was born in a manger, Introduced something that the world had not seen, did not expect. It was this idea that sinners could be restored. That sins could be forgiven. And totally upset the system of the world. And so I want to tell you, I'm going to mess with you during this series. I want to just go on and tell you that I'm, I'm going to mess with you. And I'm going to point you to some scriptures that I think are going to mess with you too. Because I believe that there are too many of us as Christians. And I am trying every day to purge this notion of punishment out of my system. And, and I, I would love to see it purged out of the church. And so I can tell you that you're going to have questions. I cannot answer all of your questions in this 30 to 40 minute message. I just can't do it. Okay. So if you have a question, write that question down. You call me, message me during the week. You'd be surprised. It'll probably find its way back into the message in a couple of weeks. Because I want to make sure that we're dialoguing over this thing. And so I can tell you that it will probably raise some questions. And so even to begin with, we've got to define some words. And, and so I want to begin to define some words. But I want us to turn in Scripture. I want you to go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. This, I believe it was this portion of Scripture that radically changed my life and how I conceive of this notion of restoration and punishment. I believe that it is in these verses that God started something that has continued to this very day and leads us to this message. It's 1 John chapter 4. I want to begin in verse 14. Here's what it says. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's good news. The Father sent the Son to be what? The Savior. To save the world. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I got good news today. The pool is filled. Because there is a young man that is here today. His name is Greg and he has confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, God's still saving lives. Verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. Ooh, that's music to my ears right there. God is love. 
And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Mm, I'm going to read that again. I'm in verse 18. There is no fear in love. How much fear is there in love? None. Because perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now notice, we're getting ready to change when we go into verse 20. We've been talking about the love of God for us personally. But now there's a transformation that takes place. It's supposed to be a transformation in our own lives. That as the love of God penetrates our heart, it begins to affect the way that we see other people. Watch what happens. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's strong. Not like a white liar. Like, you a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we need to work on some definitions of some words because I don't know if you have noticed this, but in this world, we are arguing over things and we're arguing over words in many areas of our society right now. But we've never stopped to ask anybody, what do you mean when you say that word? I want to just challenge you that if there is someone that you don't like and they hold a position that you don't like, look at whatever that is and see if you're defining that word differently than the person that you are arguing with. Because there are times we are saying the same thing, but we mean something totally different. So I need us to get on the same page. And I looked into the key, the KJV Bible dictionary, Baron. Because Barron is our source on the KJV. So I went straight there to get some definitions for some words. And the first word I want us to define clearly is this word called punishment. When I speak of punishment, here's what it says. Punishment is to inflict with pain or loss for a crime or fault. So there's two things being done in punishment. You're you're inflicting pain or you're inflicting a loss. And so it's, it's condemning. It's done on behalf of the one who was offended. Someone has been offended, has been hurt. And so we are going to punish the one who offended. And the way we do that is we inflict pain on them. Punishment flows out of anger and out of hate. That's its source. That's the source. It flows out of anger and it flows out of hatred. Because someone's got to pay. The heart that wants to punish is crying out, someone has to pay. If any of you have ever listened to Pastor Greg Laurie, he said this, punishment is the antithesis of the gospel. You're like, what is antithesis? It's the opposite. (laughs) Punishment is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is good news that sins are forgiven. But we hold on to this thing called punishment that says somebody's got to pay. 
I wonder if as parents we might begin to look at how we treat our children and ask the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it flowing out of the uh, heart of hatred? I'm angry right now. You know, when you ever disciplined your child in anger? Did that work out for anybody? I was never pleased with what came after that. Because what generally happens is you punish. But there's another word that I want us to look at. It's called discipline. And discipline is corrective. It's, it's positive and it's essential for learning. It's done on behalf of the one who was the offender. And it flows out of patience and love. Now, punishment and discipline are both painful. Anybody ever been disciplined? Now, some of you may have been punished. We had this discussion earlier in the prayer room, and, and some person said, I was not necessarily disciplined. I was punished. That was the heart of it. When I was a child, I was, I was punished. So, now, there is a difference, and you have to look to the intent of the one doing it. But when we are punished and when we're disciplined, it both creates pain for us. But the, the object of discipline is to make us better. It requires patience and love from the, the one who is in authority. Here's another one, consequences. Oh, I think God has gotten blamed a lot of times and people said, God is punishing me. And I would look at you and say, no, you are reaping the consequences of your actions. If I touch something that is hot, it's going to burn my finger. And I don't look at God and say, God, I can't believe you just punished me. You would look at that person and say, you can't read the sign? Said it was hot, and you touched it anyway. You were going, going to get burned. If you get in a car, and you are drunk, and you drive, and you have an accident, God was not punishing you by taking your license. You are suffering the consequences of your actions. If you drive drunk, you may get in an accident. There are consequences to our actions. And then we need to talk about this word, just injustice. What is that? Because you hear things like, well, justice was served or justice wasn't served. I, I struggle sometimes when people come out of courtrooms and they, they give the verdict and some people will say that justice was served and some people say that justice wasn't. And the question that I have is who gets to decide what is just and what is not? Who, who gets to decide? That's a, that's a lot of responsibility for a human. That's a lot. I, I trust God with it because God is just. But I'm cautious of us executing justice on other people. The word just means that it conforms to the truth. Justice is when we make things right. That's why a lot of things that come out of a court don't seem just to me. It seems like punishment to me. And nothing seemed to be made right by it. Because you see, our systems of the world function by punishment not by restoration. And then the judge is not a person in a black robe sitting behind a desk who executes punishment. That's your American system at work. In the Bible, God is judge. He alone judges because he alone is just. And this God is about setting things right. Not just seeing who he can punish. There are so many people who, when they think of God as judge, they cower behind something because they think, oh my goodness, God is coming to get me. 
And I would say, no, God is coming to restore you. That's what's in his heart. He's a judge. He wants to set it right. And so he wants to get sin out of your life. And he wants you to live in righteousness because that's good. He is a, he is a good judge. But I got to tell you, we have this love-hate relationship with punishment. We, we love it and we hate it all at the same time. And I know that when I bring a message, I have to qualify some things to begin with. And so there are a lot of questions, and I want to see if I could answer a few of them. As I look back over this, there is no fear in love because fear involves punishment. And that there's a day of judgment coming, but God says, I don't have to fear in that day because I've been perfected in love. So, so let's talk about that. One, we like to hang on to punishment. We like this idea of punishment far too much. <laughs> because we think that the world needs deterring from doing things wrong. And the only tool that we think that the world has is to punish people. So I've had people tell me, Kevin, I'm concerned. Because if you go down this road of restoration, it might mean that people will want to sin more. And I would tell you this. Punishment has done a poor job throughout history of deterring crime. Punishment's done a really poor job of punishing crime. If you look at our criminal justice system, uh, er, in the early days, I, I can't remember how far you go back. There were 200 and something thousand people in prison. Today, there are over 2 million people in prison. And the reason is because we think that we can deter people from doing bad things when we punish them. But I think most of us know that you can be sitting down on the outside and standing up on the inside. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know how your, your, your mom and your daddy used to make you sit down? And, and, and they would punish you if you didn't or discipline or whatever it was. And so you'd sit down on the outside. But you were standing up on the inside. You were rebelling. That heart hadn't changed. You were rebelling. And, and most of the time when we punish sin, you know what happens to it? We drive it underground. We don't change anything. And there's this notion inside of us that when people do something wrong, they have to pay. There's this notion, because sin creates a debt. Don't mistake that. When we sin, a debt is created. And for us as humans, we say someone has to pay. And so we think that when we punish people, that it, they, they will pay. There's this thing that says we have to, we have to do something. We have to act. And, and so we have to make things right. When something is wrong, does something inside of you stir and say, oh, we got to fix that, we got to fix that, we, we got to do something. And often we turn to this thing called punishment because we think that it will fix something and it's the only tool that we have. In fact, I've had people tell me this, Kevin, we, we as Christians can't be light on sin. We can't, we can't be light on, on sin Kevin, and so we have, to, we have to do something in order to make sure that, that we're not condoning sin. Can I just say that Kevin does not condone sin? I, I just want you to know that, and I want anybody who asks you, I want you to be able to tell them that Kevin does not condone sin, because I've been a pastor for a good little while now. And I can't even tell you the, the number of lives that I have seen that have been absolutely destroyed by sin. 
So don't you dare think I ever condone it. Because I've seen how wicked it is. But I have also seen that punishment is a, an improper tool for fixing the sin issue that is in people's lives. I started going around and talking to some, fish, some officials who are in the public sector. Some of you have heard me talk about restorative justice. And I've, I've gone to different elected officials and I've asked them, I said, is there anything that we're doing in our, in our county, in our state, to, that moves us toward restorative justice and not punishment? And a lot of times they look at me and go, what do you mean? They don't even know the word restorative justice because all we know as a society is punishment. And one, that makes me sad. But, but then two, what they tell me is this. Kevin, that idea of restoring people probably works if somebody like sprayed graffiti on a wall. <laughs> but they're like, when there's a victim of the crime, when someone has stolen something from someone and there's a victim or harmed someone and there's a victim, they say the victims cry out for but it's punishment. They say they cry out for justice, but what we're really crying out for is punishment. And you know what I have decided? Is that our leaders are following society, and society is crying out for blood. So you know what? I hadn't even talked to any officials anymore. Because I said, until there is a movement of the people of God, to demonstrate a move of restoration that stands in stark contrast to punishment. We don't have any leaders, I believe, that have the fortitude to say, we're going to move in another direction because this thing's not working. They're not going to do it because there's no public motivation to do it. And so I said, what if I go back to the children of God? To the ones who didn't receive punishment, but received mercy. What if I go to the ones that didn't receive punishment, but who God restored and gave them new life? That if I went to them and started talking and saying, you know what? If it's good for the church, it ought to be good for the world. I think it is what God wanted to do when he said, for God so loved the world that he wanted to restore it, not punish it. And so, oh. I got to talk about this for a minute because sometimes we got to know what we're talking about. When we talk about government systems, you know, in the Old Testament, do you know how they used to punish people? They used to stone them. Stoning was the, the punishment of the day. And, and then the Romans were whips and crosses, and we've, re, we've used trees and electric chairs and prisons and fines. And here is one thing I know about our criminal justice system if you get restored, under our criminal justice system, it was an accident. It didn't happen on purpose. Some of y'all were afraid to laugh because I know that goes against convention. But, but, but sometimes we call it a correctional facility. Please. Please. A correctional facility? How many people are getting corrected by that? I, we have to look at not just intention, but outcomes. Ooh, can I write that down? Yeah. We have to look at not just our intentions, because we intended to do something, but we also have to look at the outcome. And can I tell you that our correctional facilities are not correcting anybody? Yeah? Mm -mm. 
And our criminal justice reform is not reforming anyone. Because it's based on punishment. It's not based on restoration. And so we use those things. But, but let's don't get too high and mighty over that. Because we like to punish people in our own individual relationships. Oh, I might just have to step on all of our toes for a moment when I say that we punish people by withholding forgiveness. Isn't it interesting that God freely gives forgiveness because he knows that we can't be restored unless he forgives us first? Oh, but we'll withhold forgiveness. Why? Because we're not concerned about that person's restoration. We want blood. We want to make them pay. So our instrument as punishment is that we withhold forgiveness, that thing that God freely gives. We withhold affection. Mm, I thought about this before. You know, the silent treatment, mm-hmm. the couch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to put you on the couch. Why? Because I know that if I withhold affection, I'm going to get your attention. And that's what I want. We use shame. We don't mind shaming people. We like to shame them, and we like to see people shame because we think somehow maybe shame's going to correct anybody. Shame, you being ashamed, has that ever fixed you? That's that love-hate relationship I'm talking about. It doesn't fix us, and yet we use it on other people. I think we got to repent. I think we've got to have a call to repentance on this thing. We belittle people. We put them down. When they do things wrong, make them feel like trash and less than human. We seek revenge because we want to make people pay. <laughs> we, we spank and we scare and we intimidate and we control. And somebody says, oh, well, now wait a minute. Is he talking about spanking? No, I'm not talking about spanking. You may be against spanking and you may be for spanking. I'm going to take the middle ground for just a moment. Watch this. I think we should spank. I think we should introduce spanking back in school. In fact, I think we should also spank bad parents <laughs> and bad teachers and bad administrators. I think we ought to spank everybody. If it's good for the kids, I think it ought to be good with us. Now, parents, every time you do something wrong, we're going to call you to the office and spank you. Huh? Teachers, every time you teach bad, we're going to spank you. Administrators, every time you administrate poorly, we're going to spank you. Now, is there anybody in the room that still wants to institute spanking? <laughs> then the next time you do something wrong, please stop by my office. Wouldn't it? Couldn't get anything done, right? The office would be full. All I'm doing is spanking people all day long. God did not call me to spank you. God called me to restore you so that I you wouldn't have to come to my office again. That's the point of restoration. So you don't have to come back. That's true repentance. Yeah, that still wasn't a, a message about spanking. It's just me wanting to be funny for a moment. <clears throat> so, why should we hate it? Why should we hate this thing called punishment when God did not dole that out, but he doled out forgiveness so that we wouldn't be afraid of judgment, so that he could cast out fear from us? Why should we hate it? Because we live in a society that is fear-driven. We are a fear-driven society. I mean, you look at where fear shows up. 
We are afraid to be punished. So a lot of people will never even try to do something because they're scared they're going to fail and somebody's going to punish them for it. So there are a lot of people who have never lived up to the call of God on their life because they were too afraid to try. Because they thought that if they tried and failed, somebody was going to shame them. Someone was going to embarrass them. Somebody was going to punish them for being wrong rather than pick them up and help them try again. Some people won't try something because they're afraid to be seen. And so they stay in the background hoping that no one's ever going to say anything or do anything that might cause them to come out into the light and then face punishment or shame from someone else. We're afraid of making mistakes. I think men, we're some of the worst at it. I think that men, we operate in fear so many times. We don't step into that. And that's good for women, too. I know some of y'all women saying that that applies to me. And it does, right? We are so afraid to try something new, to do something different. We'll stay in the hell that we are in because we're afraid of the hell that we don't know anything about. Because we're afraid. And when people do things wrong, we want to control them. That's what punishment is about. You scared me. You've hurt me. You've done something. And now I need to control you. I need to take power away from you because you might hurt me again. So we strip people of their power. Isn't that interesting that God never strips us of our power? He actually empowers us. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. The message of Jesus is about empowering us, not taking power from us. And it creates this this cycle. And so we develop these techniques. See if this is true of anybody. There are blower-uppers. We got any of those in the room? That strategy is before somebody gets me, I'm going to get them. I'm going to bow up. I'm going to talk up, I'm going to get loud, I'm going to get physical, whatever it takes, because I'm afraid of you, and I need you to get away from me because I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. So I bow up. But then there's the ones who clam up. I am the president of that chapter. If we don't say nothing, there won't be nothing. Right? I got some members in the group. Welcome. 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 We, we try not to cause trouble because we think if we say something, we're just going to make it worse. So let's just don't say anything at all. But the problem is with us as clamor-uppers is that if you push us long enough, we'll blow up. And, and, but we, and we can't even tell when it's going to happen. All of a sudden, one day, we just blow up, and everybody around us goes, where did that come from? And we look at ourselves and go, I have no idea. Because I had pushed that thing down and pushed it down. And you just happened to be the one today that I went off on. Hmm. And and, and so then we developed this thing of rebels and people pleasing. Which one do you tend to be? A rebel or a people pleaser? There are different sides of the same coin. Let me see if I I can explain that. The people pleaser says, I can't measure up. I'll never get it right. Uh, But if I try, maybe people will like me. So I've always got to be right. 
I can never be wrong. I always have to do better than everyone else. When I get a grade from school, if I look and it's a 98, I can't be happy that it's a 98 because apparently I missed something and I got two points taken off. So I always have to be on top of my game, always doing the right things because when I do the right things, people like me. Mm. And when I don't do the right things, that's when I feel the shame and the condemnation. And so I spend my whole life trying to please everybody, pleasing my parents and pleasing my spouse and, and, and pleasing my coworkers and my boss. And it just gets exhausting being a people pleaser. <laughs> but then the rebel, <laughs> the rebel goes, listen, I don't even have a shot at that. So I'm going to go out and if I'm going to hell, I'm going to bust it wide open. Let's just be honest. It's like, look, if the punishment is hell, I'm going to earn it. Isn't that sad? The, the rebel just says, you know what? I'm going to have fun because I can't please you. I can't get it all right. I know who I am, so I'm not even going to try. And when you look at those two people, you realize they're both fighting the very same thing. They're fighting against this thing called punishment and not measuring up. And that is what this system is doing to us. It is creating this endless cycle. And we have been wrestling. So now I have us to a place where I can get us to John, First uh, John chapter 4. But I've got to start all the way back over in Genesis. And you're like, do we have time for that? We do. I'm going to go in a hurry, okay? The world has always been wrestling against this thing called sin from the very moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. We have been wrestling with this thing. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And when they did, they saw their nakedness. But here's the thing. They were always naked before God. They were always naked before God. But when they disobeyed, they saw themselves and they were embarrassed because they realized we just disobeyed God. Now the problem with that is God always came down to talk with them in the garden. And they knew he was going to do just like what Dee said, that he was going to be faithful. They knew that God was going to do what he'd always done, which is he was going to come down in the garden and he was going to see them and they were naked in their sin and their disobedience. And what did they do? They hid. And that's what we do. When we disobey God, we hide. And then they put on something to try to clothe themselves and they thought somehow we've got to clothe ourselves from God. So they try to put on these, these leaves to, to cover themselves. That is the first place that we try to handle this issue of sin before God. I'll hide and I'll cover myself. Here's what I love about that though. God did not turn his back on them. They turned their back on God. And God showed up just like he always did and said, Adam, we need to have a conversation. And Adam wasn't hiding. And then you go on, and, and now sin is beginning to take root, and they've had children, and they have two sons, and their names are Cain and Abel. And they decide that they need to bring an offering before God. Go back and read that one day and see if God asked for that sacrifice. It never says that it does. It never said that He asked them to bring it. They brought it. You know why I think they brought it? Because when we do something wrong, we think we have to pay. 
When we do something wrong, we feel like we owe somebody, so we try to do something to make it up. So we bring an offering. The problem is Cain brought a filthy offering, which is just like us, isn't it? That we want to pay, but we want to pay cheap. We don't want to pay full price. We want to get out with a little bit less than, like, I'm going to give you a little something, God. I'm going to give you a little bit around the edges, right? I'm going to give you just enough. In fact, I've had people ask me, how much should I give? And I ain't talking about money. I'm talking about in everything. What people want to know is, what is the minimum amount that I need to do in order to make God okay with the way I'm living? I'm going to wait with a long pregnant pause right there. And I would say, you're bringing a cane offering. And a cane offering is unacceptable to God. God looked at that and said, you didn't bring that with the right heart, Cain. And I can't receive it. And then murder enters the world and the world becomes desperately wicked. And we know that we get to the time of Noah and we get to this place of Noah. And God decides that he has to destroy the earth, Genesis chapter 9. But it says that he, he looks at the world and what is his emotion? It said he was sad. It said God was sad. He was sad that he had created people who had gotten so desperately wicked that he had to start over and reset this thing. And so he says, I'll destroy all the wickedness and sin. I'll choose one family. And out of that family, we'll start over. But the problem is that family still had issues. And so sin started right back up. But notice that God sends a rainbow to Noah. And the promise of the rainbow is that he'll not what? Destroy the earth by flood again. And I look at that and I say, Lord, thank you. Because could you imagine having to live right now on the earth without the understanding that God was not going to destroy it by flood again? Most of us would approach every day with a great deal of fear and trepidation, every time we read the newspaper, we'd say, you know what? God might come and get us again. He might come and get us because this thing is desperately wicked. I think God did what he had to do and say, nope, I'm not going to destroy that the world like that again because you need to be able to, to live and function. Some of the stuff going on today with this end-time prophecy is creating such a fear in people that they don't even know how to live and can I tell you that God is not coming to punish the earth. He is coming to forgive anyone who wants forgiving. And at the day of judgment, the only way you will stand in that judgment for God is that you simply won't receive the forgiveness that he freely offers. So that gets us up to Noah. And we start it again. And then with Moses, we have this law where he lays out what is right and we can't follow it. And there's a sacrificial system because, oh my goodness, for everybody who loves the, the death penalty, and I'll just tell you, I'm talking about some issues here today, and I hope you don't sit there and say, well, well Kevin's getting all political. I just think the gospel has to invade every area of our life. And I have some questions about some things. And one of them is the, the death penalty because I got to tell you, if I had to push the button or inject the needle, I couldn't do it. And so I would never ask anyone else to do it for me. 
If I couldn't do it myself, I wouldn't ask you to do it. And there'd always be that little piece of me that says, if he could live one more day, maybe he'd get saved. Maybe he'd turn his life around. Maybe he wouldn't bust hell wide open. And, and, and so I'm uncomfortable with this thing of, uh, of capital punishment. And, and a lot of people will fight for it and say, well, it's in Scripture. And I would say, yes, did you know that in Scripture you could be stoned for murder? But you could also be stoned for not keeping the Sabbath. And you could also be stoned for not honoring your mother and your father. And the problem that Israel had is by the time they lined up everybody who deserved stoning, there was no one left to stone. There's no one left. They didn't, they didn't even execute their own judgment on their people because they didn't have anybody that could. Because we all stand guilty before God. And so then we get to the end of the Old Testament and we get to Malachi and we get to Joel and there is something that has not changed. This is the point that you have to get. Everything up to this point has been about changing our behavior and people aren't changing. In fact, do you know what Israel means? The name Israel means to wrestle. You remember Jacob when he wrestled with God? His name was changed to Israel. And as I look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, and some of you have questions because you're like, Kevin, Jesus tells them not to call down fire, and he gives his life, and he doesn't seem to be about violence. And yet the Old Testament, there is all this stuff going on, and I cannot, I, I cannot wrestle <laughs> with it all. Do you see that's what we have been doing all along is we have been wrestling with God over this issue of sin and what do we do about it? And we are finally getting down to this place where at the close of the Old Testament, everybody's heart is still hard and all we've done is try to deter things. Oh, but then Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes... It's a whole nother strategy. He walks up to the woman caught in adultery and he says, I do not condemn you. And he empowers her and he says, now go and sin no more. When the disciples want to call down fire, he says, you don't even know what kind of spirit you are of. Boys, hold the fire. I did not come to condemn. What did he do? He came to forgive. And so it is out of this love that our hearts are transformed unless we simply love darkness more than light. And so we get to this new covenant, and it's found in Hebrews. I want you to turn over there, and we're going to get ready for, for baptism. We're in Hebrews chapter 8. Jesus, by his death on the cross, establishes a new covenant. In fact, when he had that communion supper, he told his disciples, he said, this blood that I'm going to shed is represented by that cup. Every time you take that cup of communion, you're remembering the blood. He said that blood is of a new covenant. Listen to this new covenant. 
Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will, wait, will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws unto their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Oh, if anybody who has a heart to follow God would stand to that and say, Oh God, please write it on my heart. Please, God, please take a hard heart and turn it into flesh. God, soften my heart so that I want to follow you. How in the world does he do that? Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. How does Jesus get us out of this dilemma of only worrying about our outward behavior? My mama used to say, now, Kevin, you act right. Kevin, if you go somewhere, act right. She sit beside me in church because she wanted to make sure that I didn't act out. But there was one thing that mama always struggled with, which is what the law struggles with and we all struggle with. It doesn't change our hearts. There is only one thing that changes a hard heart. It's when it experiences the love of Christ, the mercy of God. The forgiveness of sin that allows a person then to enter into a relationship where, do you know why I follow Christ? Because <laughs> he's been so good to me. Is there, does anybody have that testimony? <laughs> yeah. Like, punishment wasn't going to get it. It, it wasn't going to get me where I needed to go. But love did. Love reached down and said, Kevin, I forgive you. You can start again. And I said, what? I can start again? He said, yes, let me tell you now how to live. We're going to live according to the same things that I told you before. We're going to not do the same stuff that we used to not do. And we're going to do the same stuff that we used to do. What changed? Kevin, you're going to change. Out of love, you're going to operate in a relationship with me. And now you're going to desire to do my will. One of the smartest men ever alive, Albert Einstein, and I have no idea about his relationship with God, but he made this point, and I will close with this point. He said, if the only reason that people do good is because they're afraid of punishment or wanting a reward, we are the sorriest lot indeed. That's good wisdom right there. I don't know if you're a Christian or not a Christian, but let's think about that for a minute. If the only reason you are doing what you do is because you are afraid of going to hell, you're in sad shape. Because your heart has not changed. And you need a heart transplant. Or if the only reason you are doing what you are doing is because you hope that one day God is going to reward you for doing that, you are still sad indeed. Why is it? What is it that would motivate us? <laughs> the love of God. It is the love of God in 1 John that takes away the fear, that allows us to operate in love, and then allows us to look at everybody else and say, Taylor, I don't punish you. I can't. I intend to forgive you because God has forgiven me.
the heavyweight champion of the world has been punishment. And I'm telling you that it needs a defeat. And the only way to defeat it is when the children of God give out the same mercy that they were given.